Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the 54th episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In this new moon episode, I'll be discussing the Me Too movement and consent. I'll be interviewing Dr. Eric Fitzmedrude, author of The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Otter Sex. Then I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is Undressed, An Invitation to Claim Your Erotic Nature, by Deborah Kagan. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for Me Too survivors. But first, let me share with you some of my own reflections on the Me Too movement. I wanted to share with you my experience of the Me Too movement. When I first became aware of the Me Too movement, it kind of blew my mind because before it came out in mainstream media, whenever I saw a story about sexual abuse or sexual assault, I always used to kind of ignore it and I would never click on it to read it. It's, they were stories that made me feel incredibly uncomfortable I think because I, they reminded me of my own stories of abuse and people taking advantage of me, things that have happened to me, you know, from childhood to adolescence to young adulthood, things that I have struggled to process. And then after the Me Too movement, it seemed like everyone had a story to tell. And that made me kind of realize that it, my situation was not so strange, unfortunately, but it, even though that's a really terrible thing that um, abuse is so, you know, common, um, for lack of a better word, it made me feel less, um, I don't know how to say it, that it wasn't such a strange occurrence that I had been abused, you know, I, I felt like it felt like it helped me to process my own stories. And, and I think the processing of abuse is something that has stages, at least for me. I, uh, for me, the first stages were kind of anger um, or maybe sadness, perhaps. Sadness of like, why me? Why did I have to go through this? Then a bit of anger and then um, a process of just letting go and um, and understanding that the, the experience has actually created a deeper understanding within me of those situations and people who go through those things as well. And also what was really hard for me though at the beginning was when I was at the beginning of my healing journey was that whenever I shared my experiences with people like friends, partners, even some people who are very close to me, I didn't get the reaction that I wanted. I think I wanted someone to kind of get angry and tell me that, that it was terrible what happened to me and that they would protect me. When I didn't get that, I, f I felt a kind of exposed and I kind of felt that I had to just look after myself 
and get stronger as well. I've been to, I've done lots and lots of therapy for everything I've been through. And the first time I did therapy was when I was 18. And that was a time when, um, when I, it was a very traumatic time for me in terms of my sexuality because I had a very, very high libido. But then I was seeing that I was going down these paths that were trying to maybe recreate a, re abusive situations. But when I was in control, it was really strange because I've always been into, let's say, femdom. So I wanted to kind of maybe get my revenge on men for some reason. And I didn't, it was, it was not something I was completely aware of at the time. And I think I read something about the link of, you know, survivors being into BDSM. And I thought, oh my God, it just felt a little close to home to me. So it, it felt like that could be my, my motives that I wasn't quite, yeah, I, I didn't really realize that, 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 well, that, that is, was what was going on. And then, um, when it, it did help me to do therapy at first, but then I found that the therapist was very Freudian and kind of linking everything in my adult life back to the lack of boundary respect in my childhood and adolescence. And it just got to a point where I was thinking, is this helpful? You know, do we have to link everything to childhood? I mean, it gets to a point where you just have to get on with life and not be in this victim state. And that's one thing that I realized the most recent time I was doing therapy, it felt like a good release for the first few weeks. But then it got to a point where I was thinking, do I want to stay in this mindset of identifying with, you know, struggling and um, and pain and trauma? Or do I want to release it? Do I want to like focus on life today and the future? Yeah, so that was very, very, very difficult for me. And, and also, the, the topic of consent is a big one. And I think um, we don't talk about consent enough. And it's really exciting to share this, um, the interview with our guest today, um, who shares lots of interesting tips about consent and how to make consent almost sexy or kind of like a fun thing um, in a partnership. Because I think sometimes we make too many assumptions when we have sex with someone new, for example. It's not we don't really talk about boundaries and expectations. And these boundaries and expectations are not just physical, they're also emotional, relational. And I think we should, we should talk about these things much more. I've always be, admired the BDSM and polyamorous community for being way more open about these topics than, let's say, the, the vanilla world. We could definitely um, learn from them. Uh, and I think it's important just to... I mean, I've been with people that I have, you know, trusted implicitly and they've kind of like crossed a, um, a boundary with me, but they didn't know they were doing it. And instead of me saying something, I kind of froze. So that's something that um, I kind of take responsibility for. But I think it's good to kind of have a discussion about what you like and what you don't like and what's really, really off limits um, so that you're not in that situation. And also to to keep checking in with your partner, which is something that I I'd never really thought of before until I read our guest's book today. Um, our guest today, he has a great book, which really opened my mind about how to approach the topic of consent in a way that can be can be actually a lot of fun, to be honest. But yeah, this kind of topic makes my heart beat really fast. It's really crazy because I realize that these are very, very personal topics. And to some degree, I don't think that I will ever overcome the pain that um that I've experienced in the past and, and that disappointment in 
um, for feeling that I wasn't protected. Um, and it's just a very, very hard thing to do. And sometimes I think I wonder if if abuse is, you know, I, I, I think there is a, you know, abuse of power. Um, it's not just a sexual thing, but also I think there is an element of mental illness. So how much are these people responsible, you know, for what they are doing? Um, because how can you, I, I just don't think it's a, a sane mind would want to be with someone who's not up for it. You know, it's, it's a really, very it's a very, t- uh, tricky topic to approach, but for me, I just, um, think that it's given me this deep awareness and I still have, um, some triggers around, around this topic, but it's something that I'm not afraid to talk about anymore. So I know that I've made great progress and that I do enjoy my body a lot. I enjoy sex a lot and I really consider sexuality to be a great gift and I'm not going to let any traumas from the past prevent me from enjoying my body. Do you take supplements? I do and there's only one brand that I use and that is InnoSupps.com. That is spelled I-N-N-O-S-U-P-P-S dot com. And today I can offer you a discount code VENUS, all in capitals, where you can enjoy a discount on any of your supplements. I love this brand because everything is natural. There's no gelatin or talc in the products. And I love the products because many of them cover all of my desires and needs as far as supplements are concerned. For example, there are some products that aid fat burning and to help your fitness plan there's also my favorite ever vegan protein powder which tastes delicious and that's not often that you find a protein powder that is delicious as well there's also a product called inno drive for her that i tried last year which is a libido booster for women which is amazing and there are many many um, different fat burning um, supplements and one of my favorites has to be also Inno Cleanse, which is a digestive aid which can help to with your it can help to reduce bloating and it also has a waist trimming complex. But of course, there are many, many uh, supplements to choose from, and I would highly recommend InnoSupps.com and with the discount code Venus. Enjoy. Now it's time for this episode's interview. We'll be speaking with Dr. Eric Fitzmedrud, author of The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Hotter Sex. Dr. Eric Fitzmedrud, welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here, and thank you for taking part in this interview. For those who are unfamiliar with your work, could you tell us what you do? I am a psychotherapist in private practice in California in the United States, and I focus especially on helping men make a connection with their relationships and their authentic sexuality. Perfect. When I first came across your content, I was really impressed that a man was willing to discuss consent, especially post Me Too. What inspired you to talk about this topic? I think there are two streams. Uh, One is the Me Too movement. Um, As it uh, began in 2018, uh, in in the social media manifestation, I was watching that process and consciously aware that I had been dealing with these issues with the men in my practice for a long time, not at the predatory level that we saw in the headlines, but on the simple relational level of how pressure damages relationship, how a sense of sexual scarcity, whether it's real or not, 
creates a process in men's minds of the urgency to get sex instead of being present for a relationship, whether it's a hookup relationship or something longer. And uh, as uh, 2018 um, unfolded, I started writing uh, some blog posts that started expanding into a two-part post, a four-part post, an eight-part post. And I realized that I had something here that I needed to turn into a book to try to share what I was bringing, you know, one at a time to men in my office to hopefully a larger audience. Tell us about and the book. second. Oh, sorry, the second um, thing. Yeah, the second stream is uh, some of my own personal experiences. Um in the process of incorporating my polyamorous identity, my kink identities, I've made some mistakes in the consent process. Again, not at the predatory level, but I think things that many people would recognize, pressure, emotional um, upset that indirectly causes emotional pressure for a partner to try to regulate my emotions for me. And so I really felt like I needed to speak to other men who had similar experiences because it's far too common. Definitely. Um, so talk about the Me Too movement. When I speak to men about it, usually they roll their eyes and they're like, oh, women have got way too much power now. And they, they're more concerned about false allegations rather than preventing the pain that all, the, all of these sexual encounters can they don't really acknowledge that there's a real problem. What do you think about that? Well, I think one of the things that I try to do in my work and in my book in general is to speak exactly to that fear that uh, there's there are going to be false allegations. And one of the concepts that I think really helps men understand the difference here is making the distinction between low bar consent, consent that just crosses the threshold enough to not experience some kind of legal trouble. And aspirational consent, high bar consent that moves a person, a couple in whatever way towards pleasure, towards the enthusiastic yeses. And the thing is that if you're aiming for high bar consent, the risks of not crossing that low bar are very, very small. And so the other thing that I've experienced in talking with men about my book is that once I start taking it out of the predatory conversations and I start sharing some of my own experiences, men will often realize, gosh, I didn't think I had problems with consent. I didn't think that this was me, but maybe it is. Not, again, in the predatory sense but in the sense of regulating your own emotions, staying attuned with your partner, being really present to what's happening from before you get into the bedroom to after you leave the bedroom. It's an ongoing process. Definitely. And I think sometimes people, when they think um, that it's not predatory or forceful or violent, that it's okay. You know, they, if they don't exactly. identify with that type of force, let's say. And if it's exactly. Just it's a real vulnerability, I think, to take a look at your behavior and recognize maybe though you want to be a good, kind, loving, you might be making some mistakes in that process. The good news is that when we attend to this, we improve our relationships, we improve our pleasure, we improve our sexual experiences. And 
And again, there's something good to be had here. There's a vibrance, a vitality, an expression of reclaiming of men's intense, vibrant sexual desire that's available here. This is not just about eliminating negatives or, you know, tap dancing the right way verbally. It's about releasing all of the desires that we have inside and really beginning to be frank and honest with partners so that we can find the enthusiastic yeses and the great matches that are going to give us some of the juiciest experiences of our lives. Absolutely. I think your book was very um, hopeful. I didn't feel like I was reading a, a book about rape or anything. <laughs> no, I thought it was like, it's actually helping people to connect with the emotional side and maybe to have a bit more vision. And also something I really loved about it was um, the, hang on, what did you call it again? The turn on table, you know, that know your turn ons, that part. I just thought that was good because I think in too many sexual encounters, we don't um, express our desires enough and we don't express, let's say what the limits are. And I think this is something I admire from polyamorous or BDSM communities. There's always that conversation of consent is much more prevalent and much more yes. normal. And, and whereas in straight hetero um, vanilla world, that, that doesn't really happen as much. It's all very, very ambiguous. I think that it you're absolutely right. And there's some recent uh, research that's come out about this, that people, including men who have been exposed in any way to kink community, polyamorous community, queer community, do tend to have improved consent scripts. And that's why I have that turn-ons table in the book, um, as you refer to it. You know, I mean, invite the reader to really come to understand from the things that feel the most essential to your erotic connection, all the way to the things that turn you off or gross you out, the more that you know what turns you on, what interests you, what you'd like to try, the easier it is for you to realize, gosh, you know, maybe I'm not as vanilla or standard or whatever as I thought. I have a diversity inside of me. Not everybody is interested in ABC like I am. And therefore, it becomes obvious, I probably need to talk with a partner about these things. And the other thing that becomes clear, once I map my own sexuality, my own interests, my own desires, it becomes clear to me, probably my partners have some unique qualities too. I might need to ask them about what's going on inside of them and what they're interested in here in order to deliver pleasure and be the lover I want to be. I think um, the turn on table uh, would be an amazing thing to do as a couple or or more if you are more in the, in the, in the dynamic, <laughs> but to actually com- compare and contrast and then talk about that that would be a great springboard for some incredible conversations, don't you think? That's actually how that exercise began. I developed it originally for couples as a way of mapping what I call the erotic landscape of the couple with the central theme being that there's this river valley and each uh, member of a couple or a dyad has one half of the topography of that river valley. And so they meet hopefully at the depth of their erotic connection where um, the riverbed is at its lowest and they try to stay as far away from the things that are at the hills the floods that would wash away their erotic connection very poetic any more you can share with people who are not unfamiliar with this 
Um, Because I think think you had some kind of um, classifications of different types of touch, different types of maybe accessories, et cetera. So people can... So um, the broad um, grouping there is six different categories from the things that feel the most essential, the first things that you want to do when you want to connect erotically or the last things that you would want to go away. Um, I often hear people talk about just touch, just kissing, just holding hands, and then up to um, what happens if this riverbed is at its fullest, uh, what feels like vibrancy and vitality, what are the elements of that really fill up the riverbed for you? Then what uh, feels like seasonal flooding, sometimes I'll call it, but the kinds of things you think you think about as birthday sex, not every time, but sometimes okay. I'm interested so in that. Mm-hmm. Then the valley beyond that is the area where there could be irrigation with a little bit of talk and a little conversation. What am I interested in uh, or might be willing to do for a partner if they're interested in? And then the turn offs and then the things that really gross me out. I kind of don't even like to talk about those things. And then within that, the four part for each category, physical, emotional, relational, and kind of the broader purpose of the process. Amazing. So how can we make these conversations about consent less awkward? I think doing this, this turn on table would be one of them. But um, do you think how how should we have these conversations like before anything's happened um, in bed? I mean, that's too late. I mean, I also love the, how you mentioned monitoring. That's so important as well, because a yes can become a no, you know, if, if it's not going in the way you expect. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of developing the capacity for these consent conversations, I think there are two frameworks that I'd like people to be aware of. The first is that we have consent conversations all the time. We have consent conversations um, with our families when um, we touch them, you know, with our children. I have an example of like, uh, who's going to take family pictures with my son and he had chocolate ice cream on his face. And I asked him if if I could lick my thumb and wipe it off because we didn't have anything more accessible. Consent conversations are a foundation of how we relate to each other all the time. And so if we take it out of the idea that consent is only something that we're practicing with our partners, with our lovers, but in business, you know, are you just trying to get the deal, just trying to get the yes, or are you expanding this idea to what really makes everybody eager to work with you? And then the second is, um, in terms of with partners, I do think that there's a lot of uh, positive ground built by having consent conversations, not just before you get to the bedroom, but before it might even be a sexual situation, even in a hookup. Are you meeting um, at a restaurant or a coffee shop or a bar? have some of the consent conversations there. Uh, Find out how much alignment there is long before it gets into something where you're really eager to have some kind of that pleasure met because it's when we get so close to meeting our pleasure that some of our monitoring begins to fall away. Yeah, and also that's a really hot part of foreplay, isn't it? Just talking about what you're going to have. 
you build the anticipation from the beginning mm -hmm. when you start finding out, oh, this is what uh, interests you of the things that interest you. These are the things that interest me. Now we're talking about maybe doing some of those things. Wow, that starts to build a little bit of energy, a little bit of, of vitality, a little bit of connection, the eye contact, the glances begin. And that's one of the things that makes consent conversations hot and sexy, you know, especially when we're aiming for that high bar. It's it's not about a clinical. Okay, yes, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that. We're not coordinating, uh, you know, choreography in theory, writing it down or mapping it on paper. We're creating this sensual script for. I think of it more like erotic jazz. And we right. know some of the notes. <laughs> we know the keys we're going to be playing in, but exactly how that rhythm evolves is going to be dynamic, which is why, like you said, we need to monitor consent throughout, which really just means tuning in, staying connected. How is the jazz moving towards the crescendo? Where is it moving towards a resolution? Also in that, in that context, I think, you know, in the BDSM community, they have safe words that would be helpful to have in other, in all sexual dynamics and and also i liked the way you suggested something else like hand squeezing it doesn't have to be a word all the time it can also be a physical gesture have you Absolutely. seen the film um anatomy of a scandal i've not it's absolutely amazing it's a british um series with sienna miller and it's, it starts off as being a political scandal that's about to break in the news this um, politician who's been having an affair with a subordinate so that's the kind of like old story we've heard that many times mm -hmm. but as the story unfolds it turns out to be an accusation of of rape and um, because mm -hmm. they were having this kind of wild sex in a in a in an elevator and then it was a bit wilder than normal and she didn't she kind of froze and didn't actually verbalize the no so he came out not even understanding something had gone wrong and um she just felt violated and the whole um um judicial process is, is very interesting just to see what what is consent is a lack of a yes a consent is do you have to actually say the no it was a very interesting discussion i actually reviewed it on my reviewed it on my youtube channel and some of the comments were really angry from a lot of angry mm -hmm. men who just didn't understand it but it's a kind of conversation that we're having now and about um, i've been in situations like that where instead of making a situation really awkward i've just kept quiet and uh, I didn't haven't known how to communicate. Hang on, I said yes to this. I started off as a yes, but now it's like, oh my god, um, it, it's very it can be very awkward. Do you have any tips on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think especially for men who are worried about situations like this, this is where and a very important shift in the consent framework is important. Consent is for you. It's not just to get something from your partner, not just to get yes from your partner. It's for you. So if you're worried at all about a situation like this, think about your own yeses. How will you feel more confident as you go into a sexual encounter? How will you begin to feel more free to follow your erotic energy, confident that if your partner needed to stop this situation you had already worked out with them how that was going to happen and so that allows both of you to move into the free form you know loss of self-consciousness because you've already put up all of the road signs all of the exit maps and you already know how this is going to stay safe for both of you and the second is that um a part of that monitoring consent process especially in a hookup is pausing periodically 
maybe just at random, maybe at a shift of body language, maybe at some moment when you really feeling at your most hot, just for a moment, how are you? What's happening? Get that eye contact, get that, um, that smile, that, that crinkle of the eye, that passionate, yes, please more, don't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, get that moment to get, to get a renewed green light for that process. It takes half a second and it's so powerful for everybody to continue. And also respect is is sexy as well. Someone who's really concerned about your pleasure. Definitely. Absolutely. It, uh, it really creates pleasure. That's one of the most important lessons of this consent process, especially when you're aiming for that high bar. It's really just aiming for pleasure. You're going to be a better lover. You're going to get more yeses. You're going to create more desire in your partner for creating the experience of safety together. We've been talking about your book, but we haven't mentioned the title. Can you tell us the title of your book? Absolutely. The book title is The Better Man, A Guide to Consent, Stronger Relationships, and Hotter Sex. Love it. Um, At the beginning of the book, you said you aligned with feminism and not some male-led organizations or movements. Could you explain that and, and why that is? Absolutely. So I identify as a feminist because remember that the central tenet of feminism is that genders are equal. Uh, And that means that men are equal to women, women are equal to men, men and women are equal to people of other genders. Whereas when we take a look at some of the most um, prominent media attention getting men's movements that are out there, the manosphere, incels, men going their own way, uh, pickup artists and men's rights activists, a lot of these groups are uh, anti-feminist, misogynist. They build resentment and anger in men. And with a lot of pain, I acknowledge that the reason that these movements appeal to men is because they empathize with men's pain. And I think that that's very important. Men have a lot of pain in our culture. And that's why I start my book off with empathizing with men's pain in the sexual arena, in a system of patriarchy that um, encourages us to experience violence, to not understand or know how to soothe our own emotions. And I think that we can move forward with women, with feminism, with queer folk, with people of color to recognize that we are wounded like the people in these other groups. And we can begin to heal that process and make greater connection and really change the culture by adding our voices, our bodies, and our vital energy to the movements of justice that are going on for other groups too. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, I definitely identify as a feminist, but I think a lot of people feel that that is synonymous with man-hating, you know, when people say, I had a t-shirt once with feminist on it, and I went on TV and the the team, the production team are like, (gasps) You know, watch out. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I think a lot of feminists are love men, you know, so I don't think, uh, but I think it's got maybe a bad reputation. I'm not, I'm not saying that there probably there are some, you know, man haters in the movement, like there are in every, every movement has people who are more extreme. And I think that this is really a hangover from an older wave of feminism that is not the predominant form of feminism that is um, 
is the most predominant today. Uh, if you take a look at uh, Ask uh, Ask a Feminist on Reddit, uh, the number of people on there who are answering questions in ways that honor men's diversity, men's unique gifts, and also still are just insisting on bodily autonomy and equality. It's very simple. We're not threatened by feminism. Men are welcomed under feminism, desired in feminist circles, as long as we're partners and as long as we're doing our work also to free ourselves from a patriarchal system that has hurt us too. So speaking of that, that brings me to my next question. How does toxic masculinity affect men? And what is toxic masculinity? We hear this term a lot. Could you tell Absolutely. us? Absolutely. And you know, this is a term that can be very polarizing because so many men hear the term toxic masculinity and they instantly believe that toxic masculinity is saying that all masculinity is toxic. And the thing is, we need to remember that that's not how adjectives work in the English language. <laughs> Toxic is a modifier. We're talking about a portion. Just like blue car doesn't mean all cars are blue. Toxic masculinity doesn't mean that all masculinity is toxic. Toxic masculinity is the narrow confines of masculinity. Different authors refer to it in different ways. Mark Green calls it the man box. Uh, Ed Adams and Ed Frauenheim refer to it as constrained or constricted masculinity. A lot of men's authors talk about this narrow way that masculinity is construed. And here's the most important thing to understand about toxic masculinity. No man could ever live up to it. It doesn't matter if you work with your hands all day, every day, you are into cars and guns and hunting and shooting. At some point, you will age. And as you age you'll move away from the narrow confines of what uh, toxic masculinity has told you you are supposed to be. Strong, immobile, immovable, unfeeling, silent, uh, maybe nurturing at best, maybe protective, depending on which uh, model of toxic masculinity you got. But at some point, we all move away from the hero ascendant into other phases of life. And we need to recognize that we can't always live up to this. And so if the idea of what a man is can't encompass a whole man's life, then there's something wrong with that model. We can have masculinities that age with us, that are diverse as we are, that include poets and artists like we used to have as our model of masculinity. And that also include men who work with their hands or entrepreneurs or, you know, any other model that we want, but we are diverse. And so our masculinities must be diverse too. Yeah. It was pretty interesting reading your book about men and the kind of more, let's say rougher masculine jobs and how they, they, their lives are not as worthy as let's say women and children when you're, let's say on a sinking ship or, or going to war or things like that. Um, it's really interesting also about the being the breadwinner, you know, working, working, working just to maintain lifestyle for other people and not being able to kind of give that up and that being part of your masculine identity. It really was eye-opening to me. And also I've, I've grown up with a Irish Catholic family. So I, I always saw men as being very stern and not very emotional. I mean, their conversations are about football most of the time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 
and let's say if you go into a, fu- a family funeral, all the women are crying and then the men are just very stern. And, and I, I always assumed that I still kind of have issues with this, that men don't feel in the same way. You know, <laughs> I think that's something that a message we've all received and that, you know, that boys can't cry at past a certain age. Um, but I, I just wondered, like, do men feel the same in the same way to the same level as women? That's something that I still I still ask myself, you know. So I think it's a really powerful question. And I think this goes to a lot of different um, elements of how men get wounded in the process of training boys to be men is a process of not attending to boys tears. Um, My 10 year old cried yesterday because we were playing a game and it wasn't going the way that he wanted we paused, I rubbed his back, uh, we talked about what was happening, we talked about the projections that he was having, and I tried to help him soothe that. He bounced back, we played the game in a slightly different way, and we reconnected. My hope is that by attending and attuning with that emotional process, rather than trying to pave over, rather than me getting frustrated with it because he was expressing emotions that I had never been allowed to experience or something like that, that I'm changing the process from one generation to the next. But I truly believe that, you know, watching the men in my office, one of the most consistent questions that I ask of men who are working a lot is, what do you believe is more important to your partner, you or your work? And he almost always looks down and then very tentatively looks up at his partner. He's hoping at some level that the partner will say, you. And every time in my office, the partner said, of course, you're more important than your work. Or, of course, you're more important than the amount of money that you earn. But we men aren't taught that. We're taught that our value comes from our labor or our income. Um, And that if our income is less than our partner, that we have less value, or that if we are laid off or fired or displaced in the changing economy, that that somehow reflects our worth and our value. And especially as the economy changes from, uh, you know, manufacturing and core and uh, um, manual labor of any kind, to a relational economy where human skills are more important. A lot of men are getting displaced and we need to recognize that that's not our fault and that doesn't diminish our value. Amazing. I was also intrigued by how you talked about how to approach a woman you like in a respectful way. Uh, Cause I have a friend who's doing a dating course. He bought a dating course online and he is, He's encouraged to approach strangers in the street, compliment them on their physical appearance, make small talk with them, and then ask for their phone numbers. And for me as a woman, I find that really kind of superficial and creepy. And these kind of encounters make me feel very uncomfortable, Um, especially because I think you're in a situation where you give the number just to kind of get out of the situation and you kind of think, no, you know. (laughs) Um, So what is the better way to approach? What do you think about this approach? This is what people are teaching and then, What is a better way to approach someone you like in a respectful way? So I think that there are a number of filters to go through, and I guide um, readers step-by-step through it. But um, let me cover just some of the key pieces. First, is this a person who is working? 
if that person is working, they are not free to just walk away, leave that situation if they feel uncomfortable. And therefore, there's already an inherent feeling of being trapped or pressured by you approaching. Maybe that person has reciprocal feelings and maybe they don't. And if they don't have a way to get away, then you've already created a situation of pressure. If we're talking about uh, strangers, why would that person feel safe with you? Given the history of men's violence, and this is against women, but men's violence, period. And even if you're a gay man um, hitting on another man, that doesn't make the other man feel safe either. Um, approaching out of nothing among the sea of strangers in a city can be scary when our anonymity suddenly gets um, uh, broken by another person interacting with us. We don't know what's happening and we can easily be afraid that we're being targeted. So the, the next layer is, is this at least some kind of relational context? Is it a approach, a situation where some kind of personal contact is being made, a barbecue, a social gathering where people are already introducing themselves. Is the person free to leave? Are you free to leave? And then rather, if you're making that connection, if you're having that conversation, great. If things seem to be going well, wonderful. But rather than asking for a number, offer yours. Say something like, hey, I'm feeling a connection here. I'd be open to additional conversation. No pressure. If you are too great, give me a call. Otherwise, it's been nice to meet you. And then leave them. That withdrawal allows them the safety. You've engaged, you've made a connection, you've made an offer, and now you can leave them in peace. You are indicating that you recognize that their safety is more important than you trying to get something from them. If they continue to pursue you in that process, great. Then there's they might be indicating that there's something reciprocal. You can also just make it clear, like, hey, I said I was feeling something here. Um, you came and approached me again. That seems great. It's really exciting to me, but I just want to make sure. Are you also feeling a connection? Or did you, did you just want to continue this conversation because you made you know, uh, one introduction with me and you're a little bit shy to meet other people here? You can use all of your explicit questions uh, questions to remove all question from the situation. And that suddenly starts to magnetize an already powerful connection. And it can clarify if there isn't really one there. Amazing. So I think this, this person uh, specifically, he um, didn't have that much confidence with women. And, and when, yeah. by doing this course, I can see that his confidence has grown so much, even though it might not be the most ideal you know, situation or, or, or circumstances. And for example, at first he would be you know, shy about approaching women. Now he'll go up to anyone. And it's, it's kind of like a, an exercise for his own growth. I mean, he's not really thinking sure. about the other person at all, which is something which might be. And look, I think there's a fine line. I mean, as a therapist, I work with people with social anxiety to teach them to engage socially by using some of the same tools that I'm hearing. And when it's made to be explicitly relational, sexual, erotic in some way, the dangers that can be perceived, even if not intended, are important to be aware of the landscape changes. This is not just a, hello, how are you? How is your day? Nice to meet you. We are, you know, neighborly, you know, meeting in the grocery store. It becomes something different. And because of the history of men's violence, many people will be scared at that point for us to be 
kind and gentle and attuned to our potential partners means that we approach differently. And that's why pickup artists are one of those men's groups that I don't align myself with. Mm. This is not a one size fits all. Confidence building is great. Kindness and compassion to our community members is very, is vital for us to make long-lasting, powerful connections. If you make a long-lasting, powerful connection because you've made somebody feel safe, whether you have an erotic connection with that person or not, they might make other connections for you that can be erotic connections. That eliminates men's loneliness, which is one of our deepest wounds right now, and that can help us make community members that then lead us into um, partnership. Amazing. And just yesterday, actually, I saw online that there was... Um some dating advice for women all about safety tips for a first date. Mm. And one of them are, you know, quite easy, you know, quite obvious ones like um, telling your friends where you are, not being in a secluded environment, not going to someone's house, et cetera, which we can understand. But another one that really uh, intrigued me was the one about not letting him pay because that can set you up in an awkward situation. Cause I think these days we have a lot of, um, you know, there's the feminism and there's the kind of divine feminine um, energy people thinking even though I'm a feminist I got my own I got my own money we want the man to pay because it's how it's done um so one of the tips was not to let him pay because otherwise he can say oh I paid for an expensive meal now you owe me what are your thoughts on that because that's something that's quite controversial in a dating world so uh, this goes into uh so the, the first thing I want to do is if it makes you feel safe do it uh, so I, I don't want to take away any tool that empowers women to feel safer in their process. And I want to observe a recommendation like this is an attempt to monitor and change a man's expectations that he's developing you know, inside of him without any explicit uh, uh, conversation between the two of them about what he's entitled to if he does X, Y, Z. And one of the big things that I'm trying to teach men is that those kinds of unconscious contracts do not exist anymore. It doesn't matter where you got that message that if I do, if I'm the provider, if I pay, if I do this, if I do that, then my partner will have sex with me. My partner owes me. My partner is obligated or my partner has already implicitly agreed. None of that is true. Those kinds of ideas about the social contract they're not relevant anymore. You're being taught an outdated script. Women have moved on. And if you're trying to relate to women, you need to catch up. And so it's fine if you're the man and you want to pay, if you would like to do that, but do it out of a spirit of generosity, not to create a tit for tat sense of any kind of obligation. Um, when I was dating um, polyamorously for a little while, my uh, typical thing would be to say, I'd be happy to pay this time. And if that makes you at all uncomfortable, if we have a second date, you could pay for the second date. How does that sound? And so there was always this, I was always trying to make an offer without pressure that there has to be a second date, but an invitation that I'm allowing the energy to be reciprocal at the same way, at the same time. That's very clever. Um, so um, a couple of quick questions. What is the book that changed your life? Uh, I've thought about this and I decided to say among the many books that changed my life, Passionate Marriage Ooh. by David Schnarch. Never heard of that. It was a very, it's, uh, was a very powerful book for me. 
And I encountered it at a crucial period in my marriage where I had been making some mistakes. I had been operating out of some old scripts and I wasn't managing my own emotions. And Passionate Marriage by David Schnarch really teaches that uh, in a powerful and somewhat confronting way that if there's something in your relationship that you don't like, you need to change yourself. And as painful and hard as that might be to receive, it's so empowering a message. And it's some of the central philosophy and understanding that I use in my book too. Wow. Um, so what about a phrase or an affirmation that you live by or a quote? Uh, the core tenet that I live by is kindness. And I believe that kindness for me, kindness for others, when I pursue it to its utmost extent, includes maintaining boundaries and respect and safety for everyone, including saying no, including opting out of relationship and recognizing when, honestly, I'm not able to do what somebody's asking. I think that it's the most important central tenet. It allows for a very strong backbone when you're really following it deeply. Amazing. So when is your book launching? Book launches on September 19th, 2023. Perfect. Look forward to reading the rest of it. So it's been, um, thank you so much for joining us today on the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. It's been a real pleasure. And oh, sorry, thank before you. we go, where can people find you? Very important. I'm on social media at Dr. Eric Fitz, D-R-E-R-I-C-F-I-T-Z. And you can find me online at DrEricFitz.com. And there are links there to my book, including pre-orders, which are available now. Amazing. And do you do online um, sessions as well, therapy? I, I do online sessions throughout the state of California. Okay. So if, what about international? But most of my lead, uh, listeners are from California or US-based. What about from other people, if they connected with you, would you um, do? As a, th as a therapist, I'm only allowed to practice oh, with okay. clients who are in the state. Yeah. Oh, really? That's okay. One of the limitations. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Oh, great. It's been very informative and such an interesting topic. Most of my guests have been female, so it's a very, it's a new insight, definitely an important one. So thank It's an you honor to be here. Thank you. Today. The book I'm reading now is Undressed, an invitation to claim your erotic nature by Deborah Kagan. Deborah Kagan is going to be a future guest on this podcast, and that's why I am reading her book, which is still not available. It's going to be released on October 24th. And it's, but you can buy it, uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon at the moment. When I look at the cover, I can see her and it's a naked picture, but the breasts are covered with the title Undressed and the vulva is covered with an envelope. When I first saw this, the title and the picture, I assumed that it would be about getting naked, um, physically speaking, literally speaking, and about maybe body positivity, but it's much more than that. It's actually a set of short stories, seven short stories. They all correspond to the chakras or energy centers of the body, let's say the roots, the sacral, the solar plexus, um, the heart, etc. And there's a, there's a story to, that represents each energy center. And I thought that was a really unique way of writing an erotic memoir. And then each chapter has her story of that energy center. And then there's a section called Your Turn, 
where there are some instructions for you to actually connect with that part of your body because our sexuality is not just the genitals and the breast it's a whole journey throughout our body so it's very insightful in that sense and it made me think about my own journey through the chakras with my own sexuality and identifying which ones flow more than others which was an interesting exercise actually and uh, to do on a personal level um but yeah I'm, i've been really enjoying this book because i love reading as you know uh, if you've been listening to this podcast a lot and this structure of the book definitely is something new for me to discover and i've only just i'm only just on the second part now which is the sacral chakra which probably is probably in without reading the whole book but in terms of the chakra system that is my favorite one the sacral because that's the one i most identify my power with because it's about sexuality creativity because i'm very creative and pleasure yeah so that that's my uh that's my favorite chakra so i'm in, i'm intrigued about discovering the the rest of this book and of course interviewing her so i will be doing that in the next few weeks and then the interview will go live when the book comes out so yeah i would highly recommend reading this book or pre-ordering it on amazon and that is Undressed, An Invitation to Claim Your Erotic Nature by Deborah Kagan. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy.
Do you take supplements? I do, and there's only one brand that I use, and that is InnoSupps.com. That is spelt I-N-N-O-S-U-P-P-S.com. And today I can offer you a discount code VENUS, all in capitals, where you can enjoy a discount on any of your supplements. I love this brand because everything is natural. There's no gelatin or talc in the products. And I love the products because many of them cover all of my desires and needs as far as supplements are concerned. For example, there are some products that aid fat burning and to help your fitness plan. There's also my favorite ever vegan protein powder, which tastes delicious. And that's not often that you find a protein powder that is delicious as well. There's also a product called InnoDrive for Her that I tried last year, which is a libido booster for women, which is amazing. And there are many, many um, different fat burning um, supplements. And one of my favorites has to be also InnoCleanse, which is a digestive aid which can help to with your, it can help to reduce bloating and it also has a waist trimming complex. But of course, there are many, many uh, supplements to choose from and I would highly recommend InnoSupps.com and with the discount code VENUS. Enjoy. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening, have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.